The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Please stand, if you will, now for the reading of God's Word. It's going to be from Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13 this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed at Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, And through them, he showed himself holy. This is the word of God. Be seated. Well, as we've been seeing over the last couple of months, uh, the book of Numbers is all about God's people in the wilderness years. Remember, this Old Testament book covers roughly 40 years, the 40 years between them leaving Mount Sinai after the Exodus on the one end and arriving at the cusp of the promised land on the other. And we said last week that it's a time of of testing. Um, It's a a time of um, the testing of, of God's delivered people. It's a time of trials, in a time of, of, of God, is a time of God's people figuring out uh, who they are, but also whose they are. And in one way, it's a book about sanctification, which is another way of saying that it's a book about growing in trusting God. That's a huge part of our sanctification. How's that going for you? Like trusting God in the wilderness of life. How's that going? See, we're all in the wilderness. And what God wants for us, what he wants for you, is for you to grow in trusting him in the wilderness. Not simply for him to to remove you from the wilderness, not for him to remove the wilderness from you, or just calm down the wilderness for a little bit, but to trust him 
in the midst of it. I want to put it this way this morning. Um, a major component of your sanctification. Let's define that word. It just means you're, you're growing in maturation as a Christian. Right? You're growing in Christ's likeness. A major component of your sanctification is growing in trusting God in the wilderness. If I could sum up my prayer for us, for, for you and, and for me, and working through the book of Numbers, this would be it. That each one of us would grow in trusting God in the wilderness of life. Amidst all its ups and downs, <laughs> all of its testings and trials, all of its detours and delays, trusting him. Trust in him. Now, something else we pointed out a few weeks ago was that the book of Numbers is also, in a way, a tale of two generations. With the first generation being those who were, you know, slave from, saved from slavery in Egypt, led out by Moses, given the Ten Commandments at Sinai, are now headed to the Promised Land, And yet, since chapter 11, we've seen nothing but grumbling and complaining and rebellion and failing to trust God on repeat. In fact, in chapter 14, because of their rebellion and unbelief, God said none of them, um, none of the ones who are 20 years and up are going to enter into the promised land. None of the first generation was going to make it except Caleb and Joshua. Remember that? Remember this chart? showing the downward spiraling nature of the first generation. And we're not quite to chapter 26 yet, where we read of the new census and the new generation and the new beginning, but we're approaching it quickly. And in chapters 20 and 21, which we're covering today, we're in this this messy middle. Both generations are present, right? There's not like this clean-cut transition. No, while the older generation is aging and dying off, the younger generation is growing up and coming into their own. They're not kids anymore. They're the adults now. Finding their own way through the wilderness and learning to trust God. See, when we hit chapter 20, we need to realize that although we're quite a ways from the end of the book, we're actually near, very near, the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We know that because Aaron dies here at the end of chapter 20, and we're told in chapter 33, verse 38, that Aaron died in the 40th year after the people had come out of Egypt. So time speeds up immensely here in the rest of the book of Numbers. Another way to say it is that chapters 1 through 19 have covered roughly 40 years. Chapters 20 through the end of the book are going to cover about one, one year. And understanding that helps us to look at chapters 20 and 21 in a unique way with chapter 20 representing the the beginning of the end of the old generation and Moses' failure to trust God. And chapter 21 representing in some ways a new beginning and a new generation learning to trust God. Chapter 20 begins with this stark one-sentence account of Miriam's death. Moses' sister. And it'll end with Aaron's death. Moses' brother. And what happens in between is the reason Moses himself, as well as Aaron, are not allowed to enter into the promised land. This is the beginning of the end of the first generation. Section starts with some more grumbling, and people quarreling with Moses. Oh, that'd have been better if we'd have died with our brothers. You know, I guess like if they'd have been a part of, uh, I don't know, the ground opening up and swallowing some of them, or the fire coming out and burning, that would have been that would have been better. They say. Why'd you bring us out here to die? Look, even our cows are dying. Our cows are dying. 
Why'd you ever make us come out of Egypt into this evil place? We got no grain, we got no figs, we got no vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron go before the Lord, and they fall down on their face. And God appears to them and tells them what to do. Verse 8, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and to their cattle. So Moses and Aaron, they get everyone together before the rock. Moses says, listen up, rebels. All right. Shall we bring water out of this rock for you? And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice. Water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock too. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. Now, up until this point in the book of Numbers, uh, Moses, by and large, has been portrayed pretty favorably, all right? I mean, he's, he's had to put up with quite a bit. And he, he's been obedient. Lots of times, in fact, we've read he did just as the Lord commanded. He's interceded for the people. He turned down an opportunity for God to wipe them all out and start over with him. You remember that part? Uh, he's welcomed the guidance and the help of others. He's been pretty selfless, we would say. I'm sure it's been a very hard journey for him. And, you know, there was that one time where he asked God to kill him. But other than that, you know, other than that, the people have been the problem, not Moses. But here, God says, you didn't believe in me, and therefore, you won't enter the promised land. I mean, after all of that, after all the, the 40 years of putting up with all this, all, one little mistake and he's out. Well, let's look at this more closely. Was it really just one little mistake? First, God didn't tell Moses to give a little speech to the people, but he did. Did you catch that? God said, speak to the rock. I'll provide the water. Moses stands up. Instead, he speaks to the people. Listen up, punks. Right? He puts himself in the place of judge. But in nowhere in this passage do we actually see God judging the people. You rebels, Moses calls them. He's taken on the role of judge here, see? Also, did you notice that God said, speak to the rock? But Moses hit it. Not once, but twice. Now, interestingly, this isn't the first time that God has brought forth water from a rock. In fact, if you go back to Exodus 17, God did command Moses to strike the rock and make the water flow. But here, this time was different. This time, he said, speak to it. Just speak to it. But Moses struck it. He's not being careful in his obedience. God was very specific, and Moses disobeyed a very specific direct command from God. Verse 13 seems to attribute God's judgment of Moses to God showing himself holy. God's holiness demands careful obedience. Additionally, striking the rock twice seems to imply some anger on Moses' part. This is corroborated by Psalm 106's retelling of the incident and recording that Moses was angered at the waters of Meribah, that his spirit was bitter. And he spoke rashly with his lips. He was fed up. Fed up. Lastly, did you notice how Moses 
phrased his address to the people. Listen up, anarchists. You know, shall, shall, we, shall we bring water for you out of the rock, he asked. Shall we? And then he hit it. See, both in his words and in his actions, Moses is obscuring the fact that God is the one providing the water here. And in so doing, instead of building trust in the Lord, the people could be tempted to build their trust in Moses. That's a big deal. You ever read this story and, and, and wondered why God provided the water anyway? I mean, verse 11 says it came out abundantly. Why didn't God just hold off on the water and address the issue with, with Moses? Well, because the people needed water. See, part of what's going on here is that there was a legitimate need on behalf of the people. It gets lost in their complaining about being brought out to die, but there was truth in it too. Verse 2 began with this simple assertion, now there was no water for the congregation. Without water, they and their cattle are going to die. But in the noise and the quarreling and likely hearing, you know, just another round of grumbling on top of grumbling, Moses failed to hear their legitimate need being expressed for God to provide water. Now, there's at least three things that we can learn here from this passage as we make our way through it. Number one, we're to trust in the Lord even when things are hard. See, when we read this with our, our 21st century sympathies, it's tempting, isn't it, to feel bad for Moses, uh, to relate to Moses. I mean, seriously, poor Moses. The guy's sister just died. He's likely grieving. He's still got to do his job. The ministry doesn't stop. The people are complaining again. He's frustrated. He's had to put up with so much. I mean, just the accumulation of it all over all the years. Now the pressure's getting turned up again. The people are quarreling again. There's no water again. God asks him to do something about it again, and he loses it. The anger and the bitterness, they erupt in a moment of rash speech and action. And to an extent, we can understand that, can't we? I can. Isn't it true that when grief or stress or both in the, in the accumulation of pressures of life just build up and press in, we are more prone to sin, more prone to lash out, more, more prone to lose it, maybe be short-tempered, even, maybe even especially with those whom we love? We can understand. But here's something this passage teaches us. Even though we may understand Moses' actions, we must not excuse them. God doesn't. In fact, if you look at verse 12 again, how does God summarize Moses' actions? He says, you didn't believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people. The NASB translation says, since you didn't trust in me. You didn't trust in me, Moses. See, while sin may sometimes be understandable, it's never excusable. We're to trust in the Lord even when things are hard. Amen. That applies to the world today. It applies to you today, too. 
Just because we can understand and even sympathize with someone doing something sinful, something wrong, something rash, because of their upbringing, because of lack of structure in life, whatever it is, right? Just because we can understand how someone struggles to trust in God or how even we do sometimes because of our upbringing or our church baggage or our unique struggles or whatever it is, while sin and distrusting the Lord may sometimes be understandable, it's never excusable. Or to trust in the Lord even when things are hard. Even when the stresses and the pressures of the wilderness of life are turned up, we might even say, especially then. Second thing that we can learn from this passage is that our ultimate trust cannot be in human leaders. It can't be. I already mentioned this is one of the reasons that God's response to Moses' action was so severe. He was obscuring the truth that God was the one that provided the water, not Moses. And while it's shocking in some ways for us to read this about Moses, it it really shouldn't be. Moses is human. He's fallible. He's sinful. Human leaders are exactly that, human. Listen, human leaders will fail you. They will disappoint you. Not to excuse any of that or make light of any of it, but it's true. Human leaders, let's just hone in on church leaders for a little bit. But myself and the other pastors here will fail you. I mean, we're sinful, right? So there's a good chance, really good chance, you know, if we haven't already, that we will at one point even sin against you. No one here is sinless. Now when we do, when, if we do, when we do, we're to acknowledge that, we're to confess it as sin, repent, pursue reconciliation for sure. But also, we'll just make mistakes sometimes. Forget something about you. My, my memory's kind of weird. Like there's a good chance I might ask you the same question three times, like in three consecutive weeks. There's just a good chance of that. Um, that might make you feel unseen. Uh, we might fail to f- follow up with you at some point. We might get consumed with our own life and struggle sometimes and, and not be able to fully tune into yours like we would love to and like you would love us to. Maybe even disqualify ourselves from ministry. Or get burned out, quit, or just move. I'm not trying to minimize or excuse or any of that, but you know, God has given us to be helpful to you. God gives pastors to you to oversee you and shepherd you and, and teach you and, and pray for you, but your ultimate trust must be in the Lord. No pedestals. God's Old Testament people needed to learn this, especially the second generation, right? Moses is not the one guiding, providing, and leading to victory. God is. And each of us need to learn that too. No human leader. You can take that out of the, you can do the church, but you can do, you know, your employee, you can do whomever, any, any sort of leader, a parent, a friend. None of them will ever be your savior. None of them will ever be your mediator, your wonderful counselor, your everlasting father, or your prince of peace. None of them will ever be the alleviator of all of your problems or the reconciler of all of your relationships. Your ultimate trust cannot be in humans. 
It's to be in Jesus and Jesus alone. Which leads nicely into a third thing that we can learn and apply from the first part of our passage today. Everyone needs Jesus. You're like, well, that's kind of a strange application to draw from this. But when we realize what the Apostle Paul says about this incident in 1 Corinthians 10, he, re- he refers to the people in the wilderness drinking spiritual drink from a spiritual rock. And he says that that rock was Christ. Now that verse has mystified Christians for ages, but at the very least we should understand the plainest thing Paul says here, the rock was Christ. What everyone needed was water from the rock. Water from Christ. And Paul calls it spiritual drink, spiritual life-giving water. See, despite their quarreling, despite all the other noise that they were making about being brought out of Egypt to die, hidden inside all their noise was a legitimate need. There was no water for the congregation, verse 2 said. They needed literal water to live. And Paul takes this up in the New Testament and he likens it to our need for spiritual water. The kind of spiritual water, spiritual life that only Christ can give. We can apply that to ourselves as believers. Each of us needs and continues to need the life-giving spiritual water of Jesus every day. When we start to grumble, when we start to complain about how things aren't turning out the way that we wanted them to, when we're feeling entangled in the wilderness and choked out by the afflictions of wilderness life, shot through all of that, Easily lost in all of that is our fundamental, ongoing need for Jesus. For Jesus. And to trust in him. Listen, we can also apply this to the world around us. It's easy to get frustrated with the unbelieving world. Anybody get frustrated sometimes with just the the world around us? Annoyed by unbelievers and their beliefs, fearful of the unbelieving world around us, fed up even, enough is enough. But through the quarreling, through the clamoring, through all the noise of unbelieving, the unbelieving world's life, right, we're also to hear their legitimate need for Jesus. What they don't need to hear either explicitly with our words or implicitly with our mouths, is, listen up, rebels. What they need to hear is of God's merciful, gracious, spiritual, life-giving water made available to them only through Jesus. And don't hear me wrong, they're going to need to acknowledge their sin going to need to humble themselves, repent of sin, trust in Jesus alone for salvation. That's all true. But let's make sure that we're drawing them into the life-giving water of Jesus, not growing fearful of them or isolating from them, growing fed up with them, and thereby repelling them from the only thing that can actually save them. Let's also remember that their sanctification, their growing in Christ-likeness, just like yours and mine, happens on the other side of being saved by Jesus. No other way around. And not the other way around, unless we preach an inverted gospel, which is really no good news at all. Jesus saves who? Sinners. Sinners. 
He's the rock and everyone needs Jesus. All right, back to the text. We've seen Moses' failure to trust God with the incident at the rock. We see it again in the next passage where Edom refuses to let him pass through. Or you can read that on your own, but when you do, when you read verses 14 through 21 of chapter 20, maybe just skim it with your eyes even while we're here, what you'll notice is that the Lord is strangely absent from this encounter. He doesn't instruct Moses to take that route. It seems to be Moses plowing ahead on his own, trying to take the easy way, the shortest way, the direct way, rather than trusting God, following God, and it leads to failure. And it's a massive contrast, actually, with the opening of chapter 21, when the people seek out the Lord before going into battle and receive victory. Instead, what we see in this account is an emotional appeal to Edom instead of a humble appeal to God. Negotiations instead of prayer. Self-assertion in the place of submission. And it doesn't work. Lastly, in chapter 20, we read of the death of Aaron in that last paragraph. And Eleazar's succession of him as high priest, signaling the end of the first generation and the beginning of the new. And whereas chapter 20 focused on the beginning of the end of the first generation and Moses' failure to trust, chapter 21 represents in some ways the new beginning and the new generation, learning to trust. And I say that because when you turn into chapter 21, the first thing that we read of is, is a successful battle of God's people. Noticeably absent from this account, however, is any reference to Moses whatsoever. In fact, at multiple points in chapter 21, we read of Israel vowing to the Lord. The Lord responding to Israel, the people of Israel setting out, Israel sending messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Moses isn't gone yet. He's here in chapter 21 too, but we get a sense that a transition is occurring. The younger generation is coming into its own. And the first thing that we read of with this new generation is a victory over the Canaanites. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. When the, when the Canaanite, the king of Aran, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Ethereum, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Now, in the past, <laughs> that sort of adversity, some of them getting taken captive, would have caused Israel to, to go into a catastrophic tailspin. You know, just into complete despair and complete, running around, we're all going to die. You ever hit a catastrophic tailspin in your life? Just that downward spiral of catastrophic thinking? <laughs> it's happened over and over to the Israelites, but here in the new generation, what we see them do is take it in stride. They take it in stride. Verse 2, Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you, Lord, if you, will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Victory. Victory. In full obedience to their vow, they devoted their, them and their cities to destruction. This is, this is significant for two reasons. One, it's their very first success against the Canaanites. That's a big deal. It's like the first victory of the, of the Matt Rule era for Nebraska football. It's a big deal. It's also significant because of where it occurred. Hormah. Which if you go back to Numbers 14, after Moses had sent the spies 
And they came back, and everyone but Caleb and Joshua said, there's no way we can go into the land. They're going to squash us. And God responded in judgment, but Moses interceded, and God said, okay, none of your generations going to enter the promised land, but you're going to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness until you die. You remember what they did next? They ran off into battle without the Lord against the Amalekites and the Canaanites who defeated them where? Hormah. Hormah. So Hormah is like the Michigan Wolverines and the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Uh, you, you can only use so many college football illustrations in one year. We're using them all today, <laughs> just so you know. Um, Numbers 14 and the first generation's defeat is like 2018 Scott Frost era getting destroyed 56 to 10 by Michigan at Michigan, right? What Numbers 21 would be like then, you guys who aren't football fans are like, come on, seriously. What Numbers 21 would be like then is if Matt Rule's very first victory came against those same Michigan Wolverines in Ann Arbor at the big house. <sighs> Didn't happen. The game wasn't even there. It was here. Um, even if it wasn't going to happen, right? It didn't come close to happening. That's why Numbers 21 is a miracle of God's victory over the Canaanites in Israel. But you get the point? At the very same location where the last generation failed to trust God and was defeated, the new generation gained sweet, sweet victory over the same enemy. Not by their own strength, but by trusting in the Lord. They're growing. They're, they're trusting. But it isn't a smooth growth curve. Sanctification never is. It's messy. Which means we shouldn't be entirely surprised by what we read next. Chapter 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they sent out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What's going on here? Well, the people are impatient. Why are they impatient? Because it's been 40 years. That's why. And they've just defeated some of the Canaanites. They'd like to start, they'd like to keep marching straight up to the promised land. Thank you very much. See, if you look at a map. Um, not all the places in Numbers are easy to locate on a map. This is the, yeah, this is all, you probably can't even see that. This is like the ESV Bible, the ESV study Bible's best attempt at it. Um, where that first arrow at, that's Mount Or, right? And then north of there, that's, that's Hormah. That's where they just had their victory over the Canaanites, right? Now, if we do the next one, that's the promised land. It seems like that's the way we should be going, right? Like God, if you know where the promised land is, it seems like we should keep going north. But instead, next one, they go down towards the Red Sea. They turn back. What are we doing? What are we doing? You might be a little impatient too. We can understand their impatience. But it doesn't excuse it. God is leading them where he wants them to go. Maybe you can relate with that and impatience in your life. You, you can see a straight line from where you're at today to where things need to be in God. If we could just go that way. And he's got a different plan for you there. He's taking you around the long way. You're growing impatient. Maybe even start to complain like the Israelites. In response to their complaining, look what the Lord does. 
He sends fiery serpents amongst them, poisonous, venomous snakes. This is literally my worst nightmare. All right, this is the worst, worst spot in the whole Bible for me. I just, I can't do the snake. These weren't the super scary snakes like we have around here. You know, like garter snakes. No, these were, we're talking ultra, super duper scary snakes like cobras, you know, like hooded vipers. And they bit many people and they died. Look how they responded. Verse 7, we have sinned. We have sinned. They immediately acknowledge their sin and they call it what it is. They call their impatience and their grumbling what it is. Sin. Now, so far in Numbers, Israel has confessed its sin only one other time. And even there, it was only after God had condemned them to die in the wilderness after the spy story and failing to believe that he was going to give them the land. Even after that, right after that, they set out to do that godless attack on the Canaanites, perhaps indicating that they didn't even have godly sorrow over their sin, but were more just devastated by its consequences. Worldly sorrow. Here, though, they say, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Not only do they acknowledge their sin, here, finally, they see who they've actually sinned against. Not just Moses, but God himself. And they ask for Moses to pray that God would take the snakes away, and Moses does. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. They would look and live. And there's a significant turning point here in the book of Numbers. After this, the action starts to move really, really quickly through the rest of the chapter. And the significance is tied to their looking and believing and living. See, the serpent on the pole, it wasn't some magical cure for a snake bite. You know, like the, it wasn't like those copper wristbands that they used to try to sell you to make you well. You remember the little copper wristbands? Like, you put the copper wristband on, you'll be fine. No sickness, nothing like that. It wasn't like that. It wasn't anything like that. Instead, it was a sign that worked by taking the Lord at his word through faith. I apologize if you have a copper wristband on right now. Let me put it this way. If I got bit by a cobra, <laughs> first off, I'd probably die in fear before the cobra even got to me. You know, just curled up, just dead. Before it, the cobra just looked at me and be like, we don't even need to get him. He's dead already. Right? But if that did happen and I didn't die immediately, I'd be, I'd be willing to do anything to live. But if you told me, hey, just look over at that stick thing that Moses has got with the snaky deal on top, Looks like you got it at junk stock. You know, just, just look at that thing and you're going to be fine. Um, that's going to take a lot of faith, isn't it? But they looked. They had faith that God could, that God would save them. And he did. And they lived. They trusted him. See, they took him at his word. They trusted him and were saved. And everything changes in chapter 21 after this. In verses 10 through 15, we see God guiding his people. They're on the move, and they're moving fast. It seems they go from place to place to place. They're trusting him to guide them. In verse 16, they continue to a town called Beer. That's a cool name for a town. And at Beer, this will be easy for you to remember, God said to Moses, gather everyone together so I can give them a drink of water. 
Because beer actually means well, not what you think it means. No complaining here, just God providing. They're trusting him to provide for them. And they sing even. They sing in chapter 21. Do you know what the opposite of grumbling is? I think it's singing. It's really hard to sing when you're grumbling. Some of you experienced that in this room this morning. But when you're trusting in the Lord, really trusting in Him and His guiding and His providing, it's easy to sing. It's the most natural thing in the world to sing. Do you know that the grumbling that we just read about before the snake incident is the last of the complaint stories in the book of Numbers? (laughs) They're growing. They're changing. They're growing to trust God in the wilderness. Not only are they trusting him to guide them and provide for them, they also trust him to fight for them. We don't have time to dig through all the details, but verses 21 through the end of this chapter recount two very important victories for God's people. The first over King Sion of the Amorites, the second over King Og of Bashan. These two victories are so significant that they are pointed back to over and over again in the rest of the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Nehemiah, twice in the Psalms, Jeremiah, they all point back to these victories. Why? Because here, the people trusted God. He gave them victory, and they ended up settling that land. These battles weren't in the promised land, but they're on the brink of it and served as a turning point in their faith journey of trusting the Lord to give them victory. Look at just one part of these stories. You see the part in your Bible that's set off beginning in verse 27? How does verse 27 start? By introducing us to the ballad singers. Now, when I hear ballad, I think, I think 80s rock jam. I don't know if that's what this sounded like or not, but... They sang a ballad. They're singing again, but it's actually, this is a strange song if you look at it closely because they're singing about how Sihon defeated Moab. Interesting. Why sing about that? Why sing, woe to you, O Moab, you're undone by Sihon is the implied, O, O people of Chemish, that was Moab's God. Why sing about that? Here's why. Sihon had defeated Moab in the past, and now in the present, Israel had defeated Sihon. And by deduction, college football fans do this all the time, don't we? If we beat Northern Illinois and they beat Boston College, I, I, you know, it's not the best example, but we should be able to beat Boston College, right? But that's, that's what they're singing about here. We beat Sion. Sion beat Moab. We can take on Moab. Our God is stronger than their God. This is the Old Testament people's way of saying, singing, actually, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. It's them trusting in him, see, trusting in him for victory. Now, how does all this translate to us? Well, look closely at that turning point again. Where was the turning point in the story? is when they looked at the bronze serpent upon the pole, when they looked with faith and lived. When they looked, when they trusted God, took him at his word, when they believed and were saved, everything changed after that. 
Well, in John's account of the gospel in the New Testament, we saw this earlier in our liturgy. Did you know that Jesus himself refers to this turning point in the story? John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking about being crucified at the cross. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then here comes the most famous words perhaps in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Church, when we look with faith upon Jesus, when we see him on the cross, take God at his word that he died there for us. When we believe and are saved and are granted eternal life, everything changes after that. Because we trusted in him. We trust in him now. And it's not perfect, but it's getting there. It's not going to get there in this life, but we make progress. And he will see it through to completion when he returns. Until then, we're growing. We're growing. We're growing and trusting God in our individual and collective wildernesses. Growing to trust in his guidance. Growing to trust in his provision. Growing to trust in his victory. If God is for you, who can be against you? If he has defeated Satan, sin, and death, what's left? You can sing like the Old Testament Israelites sang here in chapter 21. Satan, sin, and death are like Sion. Everything else is like Moab. If he's taking care of Sion, we got nothing to fear. No wonder everyone in the Old Testament kept pointing back to that victory. And you and I get to keep pointing back to Christ's victory. His victory over death on the cross. His, his victory over sin on the cross. His victory over death in his resurrection. His victory over Satan in his ascension. And we don't just get to point back and remember. We get to sing. Sing. We don't grumble. We got nothing to grumble about. The death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is the end of grumbling for those who trust in him. We're growing. You're growing. We're changing. You're changing. You're growing to trust God in the wilderness. How? By keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. Church, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep looking upon him by faith and trusting in him. And when you lose sight for a little bit, look again. Look again. Look again today. Fix your eyes upon him again today. And if you've never done that before, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is really about all that's involved. Look upon Jesus. Look upon Jesus. Acknowledge your sin like the snake-bitten Israelites, your sin against God, but then just look upon Jesus. See him lifted up on that cross for you. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Take him at his word. Listen, God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his only son for you, a sinner like you. And when you look upon him with faith, you will not perish, but enjoy eternal life 
Look upon Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And that out of your great love for us, you sent him for us. That whoever looks upon him with faith, who trusts and believes, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Fix our eyes upon him today, Lord. By your spirit, grow us in trusting him in the wilderness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.